Today's lesson text comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Think of us this way as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive commendation from God. I have applied all this to Apollos and myself for your benefit, brothers and sisters, so that you may learn through us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written, so that none of you will be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Quite apart from us, you have become kings. Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as those sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to mortals. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we grow weary from the work of our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. We have become like rubbish of the world, the dregs of all things, to this very day. Now I'm not writing this to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you might have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Indeed, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I appeal to you then, be imitators of me. For this reason, I sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ Jesus, as I teach them everywhere in the church. But some of you, thinking that I am not coming to you, have become arrogant. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out. Not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God depends not on talk, but on power. What would you prefer? Am I to come to you with a stick or with love in the spirit of gentleness? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be an honor and a glory to you. Through Jesus' name, amen. So today's chapter is out of the whole section of the book, the one that really 
reminds us that this is the letter to the first Corinthians, not the essay or thesis paper turned in by Paul to the Corinthian church. As such, this chapter is a little disjointed to try to take as an entire thing. And while there's good parts in every single one of these chunks, because our, our goal here is to get through the book of Corinthians in its entirety, we're going to just go through the things that we'll read into the entirety of the book out of this section with a focus on where we're getting next week with chapter five, which is probably the hardest section in the whole book. Last week I accidentally said it was chapter four, looking forward, but it's chapter five. So first, Paul is almost as it is wrapping up where he has been so far in this letter with verses one through five. Basically there it says, Paul says, we think of ourselves as servants and stewards of God's mysteries. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So Paul, after appealing to wisdom and adulthood and everything else, wants to point out to this church that he has a job to do and he is going to be accountable to God as to whether or not he does it. And because of that, Paul will not submit to any judgment of the human court, verse 3, or this church itself. In fact, Paul is saying in this first part, basically what our culture would use, only God can judge me, but Paul is adding very much that that should scare you. And Paul is saying that <coughs> because he knows that his work will be judged in the light of eternity, Eternity, he is going to do it with a clear conscience as best he knows how, whether or not that church likes it. So that's verses 1 through 5. We stand before the Lord, and only he judges his own servants. Now, then, verse 6, Paul applies this to Apollos and myself for your benefit so that you may learn through us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. That's a little cryptic, but basically Paul is saying what we would take today as a general sense of nothing beyond what is written. There is a tendency nowadays, because just social issues that are going on, for there to be sermon series on how to raise children properly, sermon series on how to have a good Christian marriage, and you've had a whole industry crop up in the last 30 years of Christian counselors. Well, those things are well and good. The church's purpose, the one thing that it can, only, that it can do in the world that only it can do is to preach Christ and him crucified, what Paul told us earlier in this book, the one thing that he will stick to and the only thing that he will know. So in that message of Christ and Christ crucified, Paul can only be judged by God and whether he carries it out. And in the same way, that should come down into the church because verse seven, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? So any of the superficial focusing on the outside things of the church, those are gifts, as far as the church is concerned, that flow from the cross. 
A good Christian marriage, good Christian children are gifts that flow from that message of the cross. And Paul, because he's dealing with these Corinthians who are very full of themselves, has to point out that their marriages are not great because they've just figured it out better than everyone else has, and now they need to go out and spread the word of how they're the marriage wizards. Their children are not better because they're the best parents that have ever been around, and now they need to go tell everyone else how to raise their own kids. The key thing is, is it is because Paul and Apollos and all the apostles that have been going in and founding and building and watering this church have put in that message of Christ and him crucified, that out of it have grown these blessings and good things. And Paul is just pointing out, you need to stay on the plot. Again, there is more in here, but we're focusing on the main thrust of the letter. So we need to get to verse eight, where things get a little interesting. Now, verse 8 is very difficult for us to translate because it's irony. And irony sometimes just doesn't go over even when we speak the same language and we're in the same culture. Sometimes it's hard to catch when someone's being genuine or they're being sarcastic. Well, hear what Paul is doing in verse 8 with this. You have what you already want. Already you've become rich. Quite apart from us, you have become kings. Paul is ironically pointing out that the Corinthian church in its own mind sees itself as being super duper wise. They're so wise that they can get upset at Paul for teaching elementary things. They see themselves as quite rich. God is enriching them and giving them everything they need in their life. And they've become kings in the fact that among the people in the church, they've started to rule over one another and build up little, little armies on this side and this side. So Paul points out the irony of that situation, of what that church is doing, the infighting, the caring about position, and he's contrasting that with what the apostles are doing in their lives, but also how the apostles follow their master Christ. Because you could read this, this description of the apostles as a description of Jesus. Um, verse nine, I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as though sentenced to death because we become a spectacle to the world. The older translations rendered it more directly about prisoners being led behind Caesar on the way to the slaughter. It's the same way you can see Jesus sentenced to be crucified, led by the soldiers through the street. Paul's starting there and saying that's where the church, the apostles' message and everything goes. So... When Paul says here, we are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are wise in Christ, he's not necessarily saying that the Corinthians have these wonderful blessings. That's not the intention here. What Paul is more saying is that he's called a fool because he believes in Christ. Oh, Paul, you in that cross, you believing in that resurrection stuff, that's just silly. Where the Corinthians, on the other hand, are because they want to have position in the world, they want to impress people, they're pulling a position that, well, look and see, in Christ we have the advanced philosophy that we don't think like you, you simpletons anymore. Same when Paul says you are held in honor, but us disrepute the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty, we are poorly clothed and beaten, but you are, are well fed. 
Paul is here pointing out the irony of what the Corinthians are doing in their church versus what their founder of their church is doing in his life. And he's pulling out the, the witness between the two things. Now, I think a good way to put this in the context of today is there's an old saying among pastors <clears throat> that when Paul came to a town, he caused riots. When I come to a town, I cause potlucks. There's just, a, at the base issue of this in church history, a, a, a tension between the model of, of Christ who comes and preaches the gospel so purely that he ends up getting crucified and the church of the world that preaches a gospel which today we call a prosperity gospel which ends up in shiny cars and big houses and pastors who buy jets that then when people complain they buy jets buy bigger jets so you should, should learn not to be jealous. And Paul is pointing out to these Corinthians that he is very much in the cross camp. They've known him. They've seen him. They've heard of his stories, and one of the things that's interesting is this letter, if you go back to the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle and our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes is beaten in Acts 18 for being a Christian, so it's not just Paul relying on his own uh, apostleship here. He's pointing out that the leaders in this Corinthian community all can relate to what he's had to go through. This is the first century. It's not particularly a place that is accommodating to religious freedom. Now, an important thing, though, is Paul uses this irony. Paul uses the first part where he says, I'm not willing to be judged by you. I have something higher than you. And whether you come with me or not, I'm going to stick to it. Don't boast. He's wrapping all of this up to where he gets in verse 14 of chapter 4. And I need to stay here for a while because you're going to need it next week to understand 1 Corinthians 5. And, and we, we're going to have to, 1 Corinthians 5 is going to take some digging into to get through. So we'll, we'll need to keep this in the back of our mind. Paul in verse 14 says, I'm writing this. I'm not writing this to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you might have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Indeed, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I appeal to you then, be imitators of me. Paul ends this section by pointing out there are lots of hirelings in the world, pastors that will care to a point, but there's just a strong difference between that and someone who is a spiritual father that you know has a vested interest in your success in discipleship. Paul is, has not suffered being the dregs of society, working with his own hands, being called a fool and everything else, except for the sake of these Corinthians. And he's pointing that out that though they have this issue in this, this tension between them, where they see themselves as higher than him and he is willingly accepting the lower position of him, he uses it to put forward that that's because he loves them and he has a vested interest in them as a father to this point. 
I think the best metaphor I could come up with this as I was reflecting on this passage is it's the difference between a good surgeon and a father who happens to be a surgeon. There are many surgeons who are good people and they have a heart and a good bedside manner and they care about their patients. But there is a difference between the experience of that surgeon when he has to say, take a gangrenous leg, than if we had a father who happened to be a surgeon. And we'll just imagine it a world where the circumstances line up and the patient comes upon his table with the gangrenous leg and there's only one way to save him. And the father being the surgeon knows what the way to save the patient is. But it turns out the patient is also the surgeon's son. There's just a weight and difference between those two experiences. And Paul's pointing out that that's the care. He, that's what he's trying to get at here emotionally. This is a letter. It's correspondence with real people that he actually knew. Paul is pointing out, we're going to get to this unpleasant point. I have to get there because verses one through six, I have been charged with preaching the cross. Paul is driven perhaps a little bit even by personal guilt. He had persecuted Christians. He had killed Christians. And Christ had shown up in the clouds and shown him great mercy. There was no way for him to deny that experience in any way except to say, yes, Lord, and to tell everyone, regardless of how they're going to push, he has to go with it. So first off, Paul is saying, we're serving the word up on a plate and it's the only thing. I think that's the real key beyond this, nothing beyond what is written. Paul wants to make certain that this conflict that he's gonna stoke in the next chapter, it's not Paul versus a Corinthian. It's not man versus man. One of the problems when you're dealing with issues of morality or righteousness is people very quickly catch on when they're debating another person. When it's just at the level of human morality that we're conflicting. Paul is pointing out, though, it is an entirely different experience when it is the word and conviction of God and the Holy Spirit that contends with the sinner. Paul wants to push there because who is Apollos? Who is Paul? What is all of his apostolic gifts and everything but gifts dependent on this core message? Second, he points out verses 8 through 13. He's not used it to aggrandize himself, but he sat there and this Corinthian church has. And he's not even calling it out to make them ashamed of it, as he says in verse 14. He's just pointing out, look at the different ways we have carried and comported ourselves as we've done this issue. So verse 14, you don't have many guardians, you only have one father in the faith, and that's me. This is again the point out of all of it where, we, where First Corinthians is very much a letter between a pastor and a church that don't see eye to eye. In seeking to apply today's passage, we I found there are three main applications here. And it, it comes down to the fact that this is again a transfer within a personal letter. But Paul gives us three good points. First off, there is a point in every Christian's life where they need a little bit of only God will judge me 
And as I like to add to it, that should scare you. Five, verses five, warning. Do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light those things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive commendation from God. There is a need today among believers to be openly honest with what actually lies within their hearts. I would say one of the greatest difficulties facing the church today is the people who say yes when they mean no and mean no when they say yes. There are many who confess creeds that they don't confess. There are many who say they believe this when they believe that. When dealing with God, who sees the inner purposes of the heart, the only way for redemption or moving through it or being honest to yourself is to be honest with God. He's nobody's fool and he sees everything. But at the same time, I think where the great majority of Christians will actually fall is that they do not comport themselves in proper relationship with what their hearts convict them that they believe. It becomes very easy to acquiesce and to make appointments and openings to get along and smooth everything over. And I think that it's to the second part in verse eight. I think the church has a lot of the Corinthian spirit in it. We have pastors who aggrandize themselves and their ministries by preaching that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and we want popular music and cool pastors, and our church is better than that church, and we're so wise because we have all the, the apologetics, and we're great because we have the young, vigorous youth group that is going on. Well, those are all good things and blessings. Why do you boast as if that's not a gift? There is a flip side to that, though, and it's one of the things Paul was getting into this chapter. There is the wealth, health, and blessings that flow from being with God. But as we've watched this church in Corinth, a lot of what's coming through that they count as health, wealth, and wisdom is worldly. It doesn't rest on a foundation of God, and it has nothing to do with the church's Christian witness or the believers of Corinth's Christian walk. They might be wealthy because of an accident of birth. They might be considered wise because they went to Athens PhD. It, they're, they're crossing it all over into the same way. And I think a challenge for the church today is we so do not want to be like Jesus or Paul, who are unpopular because they're true to those beliefs in their hearts where if it is a sin, they've got to call it out. We're going to get to this in verse 5. If it is something that goes against everything they believe in, they will not confess it, and they will instead stand on the truth. It, it's not light when verse 13 says, when slandered, we speak kindly, and we become like the rubbish of the world, the dregs of all things, to this very day. Whistleblowers are punished. They're almost never popular. But all that needs to be categorized, uh, I'm sorry, characterized by the spirit of verse 14, by that surgeon working on his son. 
There is a problem in church discipline among moral reformers, among those who would be true to their convictions, that they use it aggressively. That in the same way we can point out, well, these Corinthians, they want to be rich and liked and everything else. There are folks who, by morally reforming, want to just be reverse Corinthians. They want to have the moral majority. They want to have the talk show host position, the TV channels, the radio waves. They want the big chapel and ministry just as much as the other side. It is a very different thing, though, to come into a situation where Christian correction needs to be given. From that point of the surgeon who's going to be doing the cuts that hurt him no matter what. Paul has suffered all these things for the sake of this church. He has worked very hard to pull them back to the fold. So when we get to verse 5, when we get to chapter 5, we have to realize Paul's speaking from a position where he knows it can blow this whole thing up. And that it will not be just, oh, well, there went that church on to the next one, but it will be personal heartbreak if it happens. But because of his convictions, he must risk it and he must go forward. Let us pray.